You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we'll be in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have one with you this morning, we do have some in the seat pockets in front of you. You can look off there. We'll be in page 1023 and 1024 today. Uh, and then you can also keep that if you don't own a Bible. It's our gift to you. If you own one, you can just slide it back, all right? Or if you really like it, I guess you could take it anyways. But I'm not allowed to say that, so just kidding. Uh, so you can turn there. Uh, and, and when you do get there this morning, if you're able to this morning, uh, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, once again, that's 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Lively bunch. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to say thanks so much for joining us, especially if it's your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, one of the ways you can let us know that you were here is to fill out one of those Connect cards in the seat back pocket in front of you, and we would love, love, love to know that you were here. Uh, as Eric said, we're going to be closing out our series on 1 John this morning, and we're really going to be doing that by, as the text works itself out, it comes full circle. And so we've been talking about how First John, at the very heart of the book, is this idea of John wanting Christians to know that they know Jesus. And that really that's what he's after. That if John wrote his, his gospel when he told the story about Christ's coming, uh, his first coming, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, at the end of John, in chapter number 21, I believe it is, he says, I wrote this book that you would know or that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And then in his letter, he's going to say the same thing, but he's going to add another caveat because this is written to Christians. I want you to, to know that when you believe in the Son of God, right, that I want you to know that Jesus is who he said he is, but I also want you to know that when you believe, you have eternal life. And that's really the heart of the book. And so we're going to talk about Christian assurance to close this out. And we're going to talk about it in particularly two ways. There's kind of a cycle that this goes in. How knowing that we know Jesus leads us to prayer and to perseverance. And then also how prayer and perseverance helps us to know that we know Jesus and how that cycle works. So before we jump into that, if you would, please just bow your heads. I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and to be uh, speaking to us through the power of his word. Father, first, we just want to, on this Thanksgiving week, give thanks to you. You're a great God, a good Father, 
We thank you that we get the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters under one name. And Jesus, we thank you that that name is the name above every name. And that it is the name by which we are saved. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present. You've promised to always be here with us. And so we ask now, would you open up our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, our eyes to see as you see. Holy Spirit, as we read your word, we ask that you would not only allow us to have intellectual understanding, but help us to have experience in our heart, uh, help us to, in our hands, be doers of the word, not just hearers, so that we might leave out of here, Lord, feeling and sensing that you are with us and also walking in obedience to what you've called us to, Lord. And finally, Lord, as we talk about prayer in particular, I just pray and ask that those under the sound of my voice would not feel condemned, but rather be invited into a relationship with you that is vibrant and healthy through the life of prayer. And so we love you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was preparing for the sermon, I think through uh, prayer, it's, it's, it's the major theme, I think, of this last section, or at least one of the two. And one of the first things that comes to mind is, oh man, when you talk about prayer, people can typically tune out. And I think you tune out for one of two reasons. One is uh, prayer has become, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, it's become like the one thing that we all know we're bad at and we're most likely to admit that we're bad at and either feel really guilty about it or just don't feel any way about it at all, right? It's like, well, everybody's bad at it. So it's kind of like if you step on a basketball court with no one who's good, like everybody's bad, and it's not so bad if you're bad. It's like, we're all bad. And so you just kind of play, but if you step on a basketball court and everybody's good but you, it just feels like a lot worse, right? And I think prayer's kind of become that thing where we just say, and we're all bad at it, so it's really not a big deal. Or you step into a situation where everybody's really prayerful and somebody says this like amazing prayer when you're holding hands, your hands are getting sweaty, you're like, oh man, this guy's really getting after it. Or you talk about prayer and you're like, oh, my prayer life is just totally diminished. And so you kind of feel condemned. And so I'm trying to really, as I talk through this text, uh, I'm trying to kind of walk that, I guess, knife's edge because I don't want you to feel condemned about the life of prayer. But I also don't want us to feel like it's really not a big deal either. I want us to feel and sense that invitation from God that this is an essential of what it means to, to be a Christian, and that by an essential, I don't mean that it's just a thou shalt do this, but it's a why would we not engage in this? And so uh, I think that's what John is really after here. I want to just read, uh, I'm going to read verses 13, and I know this may seem like it's not where the text is going, but all the way through verse 17, because I think there's two postures of prayer he's going to mention. So starting in verse 13, this is the reason that John wrote his book. Here it goes. I write these things to you. Don't you like it when an author just tells you straight out why he did what he did? That's nice. It's not always, you don't always get that, so cherish it. Okay. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the goal. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. So this is the first confidence. What is it? That if we ask anything according to his will, underline that one, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we asked, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there's sin that leads to death, 
And I'm not saying you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. There's two postures here that John's encouraging. He's saying, when we know that we know Jesus, we ought to be confident in prayer before God. This is individual prayer. And we should be confident in praying for each other. We should be confident in our prayers to and for others. Now, why is it that we can be cynical about prayer? I want to I chat a little bit about this. Where does the cynicism in prayer come from? I'm going to start with the first reason because I think John addresses both of these right off the bat. Number one is we might feel like it doesn't make a difference. Like maybe God doesn't really hear me or maybe God doesn't really answer or act. And those are the two very things that John says here, we should know that we know, that God hears us and that he answers so how can he say that? Because how many, I mean, if it's okay, I know you're in church, you, you don't have to lie though. How many of us have ever prayed and felt like he either didn't hear me or didn't act, right? I know that's me. He either didn't hear me or didn't act. C.S. Lewis actually, in a very like, open and honest book about grief, said that when he was grieving his wife, the loss of his wife, he would pray and ask God for help. And what he would hear instead was like there were latches on the other side of the door of heaven. Like maybe God heard, but he's just not interested, you know? And that's tough to deal with. And I think it's a, if you live long enough, that it can be something that you feel. Now, a couple things that I think that John has already laid the framework for, so I can't spend a lot of time on, but I think it's helpful. How do we know that God hears? Well, first, and I just took this directly out of a, a book of, uh, about prayer by Tim Keller, which I'll read a few quotes to you in a minute. Tim Keller just says, we can be sure that God hears our prayers because on the cross, God decided, not, God the Father rejected Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus was not heard on the cross, we can be heard. You remember this? On the cross, Jesus says, God, why, why have you forsaken me? And there's just this darkness over the land. There is basically a rejection, right? We even have 90 song about, 90s worship songs about this. You've heard those, right? You know, like a rose trampled on the ground. Remember that? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Don't pretend. When God felt, when God, the Son of God felt the rejection in prayer. He also offered to us that we would never be rejected in prayer. That on Christ's merits, we will always be heard because Jesus took what we deserved. And I love that. In the gospel, we have baked into the cake that God the Father hears us because Jesus was willing to not be heard. Then, number two, okay, but why does it sometimes feel like God doesn't answer, though, Court? Like, what about that? Well, Tim Keller goes on and he says this. God is either going to give us what we ask for or, I know that or is not popular, but it is one, okay? Or he's going to give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew, <laughs> right? So he'll give you what you ask for or he's going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knew. In his omniscience, God knows more than you know. Now, I was thinking about this. I think the father-son relationship plays big here, doesn't it? Like I have learned few things few things or a few times have I learned something more than when I'm engaging with my son over discipline. If you're a parent in the room, you get this, right? I recently sat down with my son and he's not doing so well in preschool. Uh, I say not doing so well. They have like the sticker, you know, like green stickers are good, yellow sticker, not so good. Well, it used to be just like green, yellow, and red when I was in school. They have like eight different stickers. There's clothespins involved. It's intense, okay? I'll just say Jonas doesn't get green stickers as often as, it would, as I would like, Okay, and every day we're on our way to school, and I'll say, "Son, touch your ears," and he'll touch his ears. 
say this, I will listen, I will listen to my teachers, to my teachers. Okay, you going to listen to Miss Raychek. Yes, I'll listen to Miss Raychek. Okay, you listen to Miss Stephanie. I'm going to listen to Miss Stephanie. Okay, you ready? We're, we're going to go. You're going to be a good boy from the heart, right? Yes, I'm going to be a good boy from the heart. He comes back, he's got his folder, and my wife and I's first question is always the same. Did you get a green sticker today? And you know when he didn't because he doesn't answer you right off the bat. And so you already know, here we go, you're going to go into it. And I was sitting down with him on the couch, I'm saying, son, why is it that we talk about this? I told you, all you have to do, get this green sticker, you have your truck back, you get to have your bike back. I got his bike right now hanging in my shop, and I point to it, I say, you see that bike? You can ride that bike, but you just got to get a green sticker, right? I got his iPad, I pull it out of my desk drawer, I'm like, you see your iPad? You want to play it? Okay, I'll put it back in the drawer. And I just, I finally, it's Friday, you know, he's got a whole week now of Thanksgiving break, so he's not going to be able, he gets a yellow sticker on Friday. And I'm just like, on Friday! <laughs> you know, because now you got to make that parental decision, like, you really going to ground him for the whole week, you know? Like, some of these things that he plays with, it's actually helpful as a parent. You guys feeling me? Because he's going to be doing other stuff I don't want him to do, right? So rather than him setting fire to something, he could play with his iPad, but no. I'm like, you got to get the yellow sticker. <laughs> and so I'm talking, I'm like, son, Put your hands on your ears. He puts his hands on your ears. Why won't you listen? Why is it that you can't listen? And he's got this little scowl on his face while he's looking at me. And then the Lord just gently reminds me, you know, Court, sometimes you don't listen. I'm like, oh, Lord, like in the moment, right? And I'm just like, in the moment, I don't want that. So Morgan's looking at me, you know, and she's, she knows that something's working on in my, in my mind because my mind's working. I had a pause. You know that I talk too much, so if I pause, you know something happened. <laughs> if I let you get a word in edgewise, that means I'm thinking about something. And I'm trying to think, and, you know, why is it that I tell you to do this one thing and you can't do that one thing that I tell you? And then the Lord says, Corey, you know, I got this book. And there's, there's things that I tell you. It's really simple, just these one thing. How many of you have ever had those moments where you know the right thing to do? In a moment of prayer with the Lord, the Lord's told you what to do. You know what you ought to do. You know what you ought not to do. And like Paul, you say, the things that I ought not to do, I do. And the things that I ought to do, I don't do. And the Lord says, why is it this way? And this father-son thing is happening as I'm trying to you know, work with my son on this. I'm like, okay, Lord, can we talk about this later? You know, address this later. I'm trying to decide whether I'm gonna, you know, what I'm gonna do here. And I think that, this is what happens to us oftentimes in prayer is we, we lose sight of the father-son relationship or the father-daughter relationship and we, we boil prayer down to something that ought to be done. It's just one other task. And more than that, it is about knowing God. It is about this relational interaction because more than I want Jonas to get a green sticker, I want him to understand the purposes behind obedience, why it's important. I want, I want them to know the why behind the what. And when they're real little, right, you can't go really that deep with them. You know, I'm not able to really go down into epistemology with them. But I want them to know it's not just about the green sticker. It's all about the importance of obedience and authority and why those things matter, that I love you and my love's not contingent upon your obedience, and yet I still want you to do the right thing because the wrong thing can lead to death. But what's essential, right, in this whole interaction with my son, it's the relationship. And sometimes we miss this. Here's another one. My son, just recently, in case you're thinking about the prayer idea, my son, we were driving uh, my father-in-law's uh, mule around the park. And Jonas said, let me drive. So he wants to drive. Now, in my mind, I'll let him sit on my lap and he can steer. 
what he wanted to do was drive the whole thing. Now, you guys might be thinking, well, why not? He's five, and he's reckless. <laughs> so here's what happened is I let him have just the wheel, and it wasn't really enough for him, though. He's frustrated at me because I won't let him drive the mule. Can we all agree it's good that I didn't let him drive the whole mule alone? <laughs> and some of us in our, you know, in our state of prayer, and maybe, maybe we're baby Christians, maybe we're five-year-old Christians, and we'll say something to God, I want to do this, the Lord says either not now or no. Did you know no's an answer? He'll say no, and then we're, why? It's a good thing. There's a, it's a good thing. And here's the thing, I do want Jonas to be able to drive one day. Like one day when he's 16, praise God, we won't be his taxi cab driver anymore. But it's not good for him to drive at five. If we knew what God knew as a father, as a loving father, Many of the things that he has given to us is really what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. And so the relationship is what matters. And I want to remind you also, there are some times where you just don't understand. Like I've, my wife and I, we've had moments, and I'm sure you have too, where you just don't understand why there's not just an immediate yes from God. Something that just seems like all the things line up. And here's what, the only explanation that I can have for that sometimes is that sometimes when God does one thing, he's doing a million things. And at times, we don't understand why he would ask us to wait, why he would say no to something that seems like it's an obvious yes. And I always resign myself back to one day we will see him face to face and know that it could have not have happened any other way than this for you to get the most amount of glory and us to get the most amount of joy. That's what I know. I have to resign myself to that because there are some things that just aren't knowable. But let me pose another thought. Maybe that's not the only reason we don't pray. Because I know that would be the easy one, right? Because if you go down to like this deep secret, uh, I don't know, you know, theology, it's, it's a mystery and so it just keeps me hung up. I think there are other reasons we don't pray that are really not mysteries at all. And hear, hear me on this. I don't want you to feel beat up about this. I just want you to see them for what they are so you could say, oh, yeah, that's probably more like it. Here's a few. One, I think prayer causes us, it forces us to wait on God and we live in a culture that doesn't wait on anything. We like to see immediate results. Like, I go to Chick-fil-A, the line's all the way to Westlake Houston. I'm like, my gosh, why am I even in line? They have me through the line in a minute and a half, and they're telling me it's their pleasure to do that for me. I eat immediately. I pay, like, you know, a reasonable price, and I'm eating it in the car while I drive in this machine that goes 70 miles an hour down the road to drive me to my house where I walk in, and I immediately ask it to be colder or warmer, and it is. And then I go inside, and then if I'm hungry again later, I'll open up my freezer, and then I'll throw it into this machine that does something, and in two minutes, it's food ready again. You guys walk? I, turn, I push a button, a television comes on, people tell me what's happening all around the world, even though I don't want to know it. And then I push another button to shut them up, and it goes to sports, and I get to watch people playing you know, a sport for enjoyment all around the world. And then if I push another button, I can do a picture in a picture and watch two games at once. It's glorious. You know, it doesn't even take a second for that to happen. And then there's prayer. And prayer is you wipe the crust out of your eyes, you grab your coffee, you feel like death, you go in, you open your Bible, and you ask God, Lord, I want to feel you this morning. And all you feel is tired. And you say, Lord, would you rejuvenate my spiritual life? And you don't immediately, sometimes you might, but you don't immediately feel Holy Ghost goosebumps. 
And you say something like, you know, I've been, Lord, I'm going to be faithful in prayer like the persistent widow. And you've been asking for this one thing over and over and you haven't seen an immediate answer to that. And you know what that makes you feel like? This is not as convenient as the rest of my life. Everything else, basically, we push a button and it happens. And then God says, I won't operate on that time clock. As a caveat, this isn't even a part of my sermon, but you know why we struggle sometimes maritally? It's because your spouse doesn't operate like that either. It's like everything else in life. You're just like, it does what I tell it. And then you have a wife and you're like, why was, it's not working. (laughs) And you wonder why that's a struggle. Like, oh, she has a brain. That's a shocker. She has opinions that matter. You're like, I didn't think, I I didn't order this model, you know? (laughs) There's nowhere to send it back, you know? And sometimes she feels like that with you. There's like, I could, if, I had, if I had a trash service, this would work. I have you. <laughs> you work like a junior hire, you know, like, like a quarter of the time, and even still, it's not that great. And so with our relationship with God, that was, a, that was for free. I didn't even say that to the nine. Who knows? But the relationship with God is not immediate. So it's a struggle. Prayer can be a struggle because it requires what might be the most forming thing in your life, to wait and be patient upon God to act. Oh, man, what does waiting do? It reminds you of so many good things. I hate it, and I love it. I hate it because it just takes all that is within me not to want to force and make a circle of square in my life and just jam things together and make them work. And yet there are things that I have to wait upon God for, and it reminds me in the best moments that I'm not in control of nearly as much as I think I am. I am not God. And that if I were in control, not only would I be in trouble, so would you guys. I would mess it up gravely. And prayer causes me to wait. It causes me to be silent. It causes me to pause. It changes my pace. Because, you know, prayer, how long, how long is enough to pray? Does anybody got that silver bullet? 30 seconds? Is it 30 minutes? Is it depending on who you read? I mean, you read George Mueller, you are all terrible. So am I. You know, if I read like, I don't know, like a New York Times bestseller, it's like I can even like, I can even hack down my prayer time to be more like efficient, you know? It's like seven minute prayers, seven second prayers multiplied by seven and seven. And then you got like, you know, I'm changing the world. But in reality, I don't think there is just like this easy answer. Okay, what about another practical? Like we're intensely busy and tangible things are easier to put your hands on and prayer seems like it's a waste. It's nothing tangible. It's like if I go mow the lawn, I can look at the lawn and be like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, did that. I edge it, I'm like, even better. I pick up all the leaves, which there are way too many in my yard right now, and I could step back and go, my wife is gonna be happy at least for like the 30 minutes. I'm gonna be a good guy, you know? And then prayer is like this, I spent 30 minutes, I spent an hour, I didn't really, my mind was going everywhere, I don't feel closer to God, did it really work? And you can't like stand back and go, "Uh uh-huh, look at that, because you don't even know. You're like, I don't even know what's happening in this odd practice. Or I know we're in church, but I'm going to be honest for a second. You're spiritually lazy. I'm spiritually lazy sometimes. You know? Like some things are just more convenient and fun than prayer. Right? And I think convenience and fun, and especially in our culture, they go hand in hand. It's like it's fun when it's convenient. Like there's a lot of things that my wife's like, let's go do this. And I'm like, ooh, the zoo. <laughs> you know? She's like, it'll be fun with Jonas. I'm like, will it though? Like, <laughs> is it really? It's like, like you think the zoo, you think fun, right? And I'm kind of like, can't we just like Google image some bears? 
Like they even got videos of this stuff now. I just push play and it looks like we're there. You know, we can even have a surround sound experience, put headphones on them. And I'll just sit in front of, because that's more convenient, right? And prayer is like the most inconvenient thing. And then therefore we think we've equated convenience to fun. So we're like, it can't be fun. Can't be enjoyable. And yet the Bible tells us the exact opposite. Sometimes I think we're theologically malformed. And by that, I mean we think, oh, well, God's sovereign, so there's no reason for me to pray. Listen to me. There is no biblical merit for that statement. The Bible simultaneously tells us we have a sovereign God and over 500 times says that we ought to pray. Those are, those are connected in a very, very mysterious way, but an important way. And sometimes we just think, well, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. He's a big God. I'll just go about my everyday life. And what happens is then we live this kind of autonomous existence over here apart from our relationship with God because we think we know the right things. And then maybe I think the most prevalent one that many of us aren't even thinking about, and I'm throwing myself into this category, we are just totally spiritually unaware of the spiritual opposition that's happening, that there's a spiritual war. Now, I know some of you guys don't get so charismatic on me. Okay. There's a story in your Bible about a guy named Daniel who's praying and asking God for an answer. And the angel Gabriel apparently shows up to him and says, hey, I've had your answer for 21 days. But there's been this battle against this guy, this, apparently this dark spiritual force like this angel or demon called the Prince of Persia combated Gabriel and withstood him withholding the answer that he had had for 21 days. He said, I had to get... Michael, the archangel, to come and help. So apparently Michael is stronger than Gabriel. You know, I picture Gabriel be like kind of like a pudgy version of me. And then I pick, which that's pudgier than pudgy. But then I picture Michael being a little, this is all me, by the way. It's not biblical. But I picture Michael being kind of, you know, like just Leonidas. You know, he's like, I'm, you know, he shows up. He's like, hey, are you fight him. I'm going to go, you know, do my job. I'm a mailman. You know, he's just, you know, skiing down the mountain to Daniel. That's kind of how I picture it. Um, there's a spiritual battle going on. Uh, if, if, I encourage you if, you, if you want to read some good literature on this, uh, read a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, he says, listen, whenever the enemy, you might be thinking, I want to be in prayer. I need to spend some time with the Lord. The enemy doesn't say, no, you need to worship Satan. No. I mean, no. He says, hey, I think you're hungry. Ooh, look, there's a good place. Get a kolache. And you're like, ooh, I could pray later. Let's go get a kolache right? Because hunger is not a sin. Eating is not a sin. Enjoying good food is not a sin. But it can be really distracting in the moment where you thought, you know, I could spend some time in prayer. See, the enemy's really crafty, and sometimes we don't acknowledge that there's a spiritual battle going on, so we just think our hankerings or our uh, desires or something that pops into our mind is just, you know, happenstance. I think that's not true. And so if we could see it for what it was, you'd see, oh, this is actually a battle that's going on for my own soul for my own heart and that the world wants to harden my heart against God and that whenever I ignore my prayer life, my soul slowly but surely shrinks. And so when I would have gone this way, the enemy just kind of gently said, why don't you do a good thing and make it a God thing, which becomes a bad thing. Why don't you take something that is morally neutral, make it an idol, and that'll be totally fine. I think the enemy loves that much more than he would love, you know, you going full on occult Satanism. And why do I say that? Because I think whenever people are experiencing the occult, it's just so obvious that sometimes people have that drastic, like, this is wrong. But there's a gradual slope of hardness of heart that doesn't seem wrong at all because it's all morally neutral stuff. So he says, why don't you deal with that? Just, I'll make you more busy. 
That makes tons of sense, right? And it robs us of a prayer life. And John here is saying, remember the cycle. When we're sure that we know Jesus, it should give birth to this vibrant prayer life. We can be confident and come before the Father who is omnipotent because of Jesus. We can be sure he hears us because of Jesus. We can be sure that he'll answer because of Jesus. And then check this out. Then the other side of the cycle is when he answers our prayers, then it reminds us that we're his and so we're assured more. Is there anything more assuring to you that God is real and that you are his than when he answers prayer? You guys know what I'm talking about? If you haven't experienced that, I want to encourage you, ask God for bold things. I've been a part of, some, uh, one time we prayed over someone in the hospital who had uh, scans for tumors. And they came back and said, they had scans with all the tumors. Now they have scans and there's no tumors and they don't have an explanation. That, there's very few things that are more assuring to you that A, God is real and he's for you than moments like that. And you might say, well, I haven't had anything radical like that. I will tell you, even the smallest of things sometimes can be so assuring. God is with me. God is real. The little prayers. I have even found the little prayers are very sweet and special because it's only me and God that know about it. Like, I asked you about this. It was very small, and you made a way. You know, Morgan and I have a, I read it, I think, like six months ago in one of my sermons, but I don't have time to talk all about it. But uh, at a men's uh, retreat, gave out note cards to all the men, Said, let's, let's ask God for something, you know, this weekend we're expecting God to do. I had all my bullet points on the front, which, by the way, God answered those prayers. It was cool to see. And then on the back, I just had a little one-liner, God, make me a father in the year 2014. And I'll tell you, I was not, Morgan did not get pregnant in 2014. I did not, there was no child born. And I remember feeling like, wow. All the front side was all these prayers about other people. And then the one prayer that I had asked for me, nothing. And that was around January of that year, 2014. Well, some of you know this story, but we adopted my son. We brought him home. And he's just, there's so many things that are wrapped around that story that are, that are answers to prayer. But one that sticks out to me is that he was born in September, nine months after that prayer, all the way across the world, and I didn't know. That he made me a father that year. And those are just little moments. I didn't, I didn't even tell my wife about that prayer. I didn't tell anybody else about that prayer. I found that note card later on. And the only reason I tell it to you is not because I'm righteous, because I was very just struggling to believe. I tell you because I want you to know God answers prayer. And that when he answers those prayers, it just confirms to you you're his. He loves you. He's with you. And that even whenever he tells you a no later on, you can always go back to the what felt like a no was really a yes. Sometimes it just takes time. Tim Keller says it like this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It's the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God, Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. That's a massive statement, isn't it? Prayer's the key to everything we need to do and be in life. <laughs> all of your being, all of your doing, called by God, it wraps itself up in your relationship with God in prayer. That's massive. And I hope you hear that and feel that as an invitation and not as just one more thing on your list. Prayer is this state of being in submission to God and talking with him. I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler as I prepared for this, and he just said, we need to learn how to just pray what you got. And I loved that. 
And what he means by that is sometimes we think there's like a science to prayer. Even some of our like more capitalistic books that say like seven keys to unlock a prayer life. Like that's, we're like, what are they? I need it. Uh, I just need you to know the key is pray what you got. My son has a speech delay, but I do not get mad when he says a new word and it sounds nothing like the real word. I rejoice. We celebrate. We have a whole full-on party at our house when he says new sentences, and they aren't even right. His new one is singing, and it's a wiggle song uh, called Fruit Salad, Yummy Yummy. Okay? And it, he does not on pitch. <laughs> it, like, Morgan's a beautiful singer. Jonas, don't, he, doesn't have, he doesn't got it right now. All right? Hoping it, it develops. Not there. Sometimes he doesn't get all the syllables right. He, you know, does his S's with his tongue. You know what we do? We, we cheer. God longs to hear these sometimes even uninformed, the, the musings of your heart, not because they're always so right, but because he loves you and wants to hear. And I think over time, you begin to be, when you get to know God through his word and in prayer, your prayers begin to be more theologically formed, right? But what do you delight in as a father, as a parent, as a mom? You delight in your kid talking to you. So I want to encourage you, just pray what you got. If you find yourself saying, you know what, I'm not a good prayer. I'm not skilled at prayer. Pray what you got. Is that a sentence? Do it. Go for it. The key is ask. Not ask righteously, ask well, ask theologically nuanced. Ask. Just ask. And then point number two, verses 16 through 17, you see this other element, which this kind of follows John's pattern, doesn't it? Love God and love people. So he says, if you see a brother in sin, ask, and he'll give, be given life. Now, there's a lot of nuanced things, the sin that leads to death, the sins that leads to, uh, does not lead to death. Here's what I think the main point is. The main point is that our prayers are not just about us, but they go outwardly too. So our relationship with God is not just uh, vertical. It has to go horizontal. That's been John's whole theme throughout. It's like, you can't say, I love God, but you don't love neighbor. I love that he says here, when you see your brother committing sin, he doesn't say, run to someone else and talk about them. He says, run to me and talk about them. See the difference? The flesh says, gossip. The spirit says, pray. The flesh says, make much of their sin. The spirit says, make much of me and what I can do. You see, we can't change people's hearts. And I'll tell you as a pastor, that's to struggle. But what can we do? We can rely on the one who changes hearts. And he can get the glory for that. Pray for people. Listen to this. Intercession can, is better at times than intervention. And I will say, intervention without intercession will go horribly wrong. When you try to intervene in your human way before you've interceded in prayer, you're bringing the flesh to a fleshly situation. Don't bring the flesh to, to try and manage the flesh. The flesh can't be managed with. I, w I recently watched the movie Darkest Hour. Have you guys seen that movie? It's, a, it's really good. By Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill. And everybody around him is trying to tell him to just negotiate with Hitler. Just negotiate peace. He's done all this, but he won't get our island if we just say, leave us alone and do your thing. And there's just this moment where finally Winston Churchill's fed up and he says, you can't negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. He says, there's no negotiating with this man. And, you know, he, it's, it's obviously a very powerful moment. But I thought, this is what we try to do with sin and flesh. 
You can't negotiate with a tiger while your head is in its mouth. Human intervention is trying to manage something unless we intercede and we bring with us the God who is omnipotent. Now there's a difference in this intervention. We're not just bringing our best advice. We're not just bringing our best counsel. We're bringing with us God, the Holy Spirit. And we ask him, we appeal to him. There was one quote that I read as I was preparing for the sermon, it says, because our God is omnipotent, when we come to him in prayer, prayer becomes omnipotent. It can be all powerful because it's an, it's an appeal to God who can do anything. So what do we do? When you're frustrated with someone, are you frustrated enough to pray yet? If it's your spouse, I'm so mad at her. Are you mad enough to pray? We call upon God for others. We call upon God when others harm us. We call upon God when others are hurting Call upon God in prayer. And then finally, John takes a turn here to preservation or perseverance. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know we're from God, even though the whole world is in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So I love this, this text. I love this portion because what do you do when you're not killing it spiritually? Anybody else ever been there? Hmm? What do you do when you're just not killing it on the whole Jesus front? Like your prayer life's not all that good, for instance. Like this sermon, I know there's, there's a tendency to be like, oh man, I can't wait till this one's done. Marriage isn't all that great, not feeling all that spiritually alive and vibrant. You know, like you, you turn on KSBJ and you can't overlook the quirky weirdness of it this time. And if, if you love, hey, listen to me. I love KSBJ, okay? Don't get mad at me. Don't email me. I'm on, I am a pro KSBJ person, but you, can, you can't overcome that sometimes there's a song on there that you're just like, what? You know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like we're going to another level. You feel like you're playing Mario. All right, let's continue. What do you do? How about this one? What do you do when you're, you're, you're struggling with a habitual sin pattern that just like keeps cycling back around? Confess it to brothers in community or sisters in community. Confess it to somebody you love. You've seen counselors. And you just, you keep falling back into the same unbelief and it just is owning you. Because here's what I know from being a pastor and from being a Christian and they both tell the same tale. That's, that is great fertile soil for you to stop having assurance that you're his. That is fertile soil for feeling apart from Christ. And what does John do for us? He says, hey, we know that those who've been born of God, they're not gonna make this pattern of sinning, right? But what if you're in the pattern? Well, he says it like this. How do we know? We know because he who was born of God, Jesus Christ, will protect them, guard them, keep them, preserve them. Hold them fast. Yeah, the whole world's in the power of the evil one, yeah. It's a tough world that we're living in. Yeah, you're constantly being derailed. Yeah, you might constantly, but guess what? He's overcome the world. So what's the point here? We are not persevering in Christ because of our strength. We persevere because Christ has persevered. We can be confident in our pursuit of holiness, not because we're nailing it, but because of God's pursuit of us. He always nails it. So check this out. When you and I are in these cycles, when we're running away from God headlong, here's what you can trust in. He will pursue you. He's faster than you are. So like my son who runs down the driveway, he's running away from me. I'm faster than him, at least for now. 
I will catch him. He will be in my arms. I will bring him back to safety. When he goes into the pool and he goes into the deep end and he can't swim, he can be okay because guess what? I'm tall enough to stand in the waters. He can't. I'm strong enough to hold him when he's wriggling and terrified. That is the God that we serve. When you're not faithful, he's faithful because he'll never deny himself. And guess what? He has called you his own. And therefore, denying you would be denying himself. He's one now with you. That's what he said. You're my bride. This is, this is why we can be sure that we're his because the object of our faith is more important than the amount of our faith. Your faith can be very little, but if you have very little faith in a great big savior like Jesus, you have enough. He's enough. It's the whole story of the little boy with five loaves and two fish and he brings it to Jesus. What did Jesus do? 5,000, baby. I'll feed them all. The little boy's lunch wasn't enough. Jesus is enough. And then whenever they all have their fill, he goes, listen, I know you guys think that it's all about food, but I'm the bread of life. It's all about Jesus, which John ends with six little words that we wanted to do a whole sermon on, but we didn't have enough time in our series. Six little words that sum up the entire book. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Or how about this? Little children, don't fall prey to substitutes. They are all lies. You get this whole world that says, hey, here's what the good life is. And they remove Jesus and they try to put a bunch of other junk. And he says, don't fall prey to that lie. It sounds good, may even feel good for a short time. Only Jesus sustains. Only Jesus preserves. Only Jesus forgives. Only Jesus cleanses our conscience, brings us hope forevermore. Eternal life is only in him. There is no other stream. Only he can quench the thirst of your soul. It's only in Jesus. And John says, it's not even in your ability to cling to Jesus. It's in his grip on you that will keep you to the end. So when you feel like your grip is slipping, don't worry. He's got an iron grip on you. When you feel like I can't keep going on this road and I'm just going to pass out, don't worry. He's really good at carrying. He's done it for a long time. And he'll carry you home. I want to close with uh, a scripture from who else but so, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Why would I go anywhere else, right? He says this, my hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being holy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or what I shall be or what I feel or what I know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done and in what he is now doing for me. Hallelujah. If I am not today all that I hope to be, and yet I see Jesus, that assures me that I shall one day be like him. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, would you bid us now like little children to come to you in prayer? My God, just forgive us where we we feel like it has to be something that it was never meant to be. Would you help us just to bring to you in prayer the littlest of things? Or maybe even the, the most massive tension that our hearts ever experienced. Help us to bring it to you. And in so doing, Lord, would you remind us all over again that our assurance rests not in our merits, but in the merits of your son, Jesus Christ. We can be sure that we're yours because Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. 
Oh God, would you not let a soul leave out this morning without feeling that warm blanket of the soul, the anchor that holds on the other side of the veil? Thank you, God, that we are called your children. 